You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 81. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, your guide to worlds both strange and wondrous. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of my Metamore City novella, Divide by Zero. This story was written for the online magazine TSAT, and was first published in issue 48 in 2006. That makes it one of the first Metamore City stories to be released to the public. I've tried a couple of times in the past to bring this story to audio. The first time was for Metamore City Season 2, but that effort eventually stalled out due to some changes in both my personal life and the quality of my recording environment. A few years later, I looked into getting it recorded by a female narrator, since it's written in the first-person perspective of the female protagonist, but I ultimately didn't have the money to pay her properly, or the time to break out the story into a proper recording script, so it fell by the wayside again. As of December 2016, though, Divide by Zero is the only story left in the Divine Intervention story collection that has never been produced in audio. Since I would like to take this collection to Audible in 2017, that means this is the perfect time to go ahead with this story. Other than the female protagonist, there is one other aspect of this story that kept me away from trying to podcast it for a long time. Divide by Zero was written for the web, and in its original version, it made use of some tricks that were uniquely suited to HTML. In particular, the later parts of the story made use of pre-formatted text, employing the two-dimensional space of the web page in non-linear ways. Since audio is an inherently linear artistic format, I cannot reproduce exactly the experience you will have if you read the story. Because of that, if you like what you hear, I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of Divine Intervention, or look up the story on TSAT, so you can experience it as it was meant to be read. And with that, let's get to the story. Divide by Zero A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 1. Friday, June 4th, 2000, Christos Reckoning. The hardest thing about giving a public defense of a doctoral dissertation isn't the fact that you have to condense four to six years of your life into a 50-minute presentation. It isn't even the fact that you have to then give that presentation to a crowded room full of people. No. The hardest thing about a public presentation is getting the audience to take it seriously. At least it is when I give one. My name is Halcyone Carmenos. My whalish father insisted on spelling that H-A-L-C-Y-O-N-E. Most people give up after the third try and just call me Hallie. This is only the beginning of my curse. In addition to a nickname that makes me sound like a cheerleader... My father also gifted me with curly, glossy black hair that grows so fast that any sort of sensible, business-like haircut is practically impossible to maintain. 
To make matters worse, my mother, a first-generation half-elf whose human mother was of Irambian extraction, gave me a gene set that left me tall and slender, with skin the color of burnished bronze, and facial features that make it impossible to disguise my 25% elvish ancestry. Let's just picture this, then. A mixed audience of scientists, students, and even some reporters, at least two-thirds of them male, comes to the University of Pyralis to see the presentation of a new model for the physics of magical fields, one with profound implications for science, philosophy, and religion. All of the conclusions of this study hang on a set of mathematical equations that 95% of them are not remotely prepared to comprehend. And into this environment steps the presenter, a young, slim, statuesque, quote-unquote exotic-looking beauty by the name of Halley. I've heard philosophers say that the universe is the fragmented essence of the maker trying to understand herself. If that's true, then clearly I must be the embodiment of her masochistic tendencies. Or possibly her sense of irony. Or both. The bedroom door opened behind me. How's it coming, Hal? We need to leave pretty soon. Sophie, my flatmate. I turned away from the mirror and spun my chair around to look at her, gesturing down at my tan business suit, white blouse, and brown flats. You tell me. She grimaced. The undertaker showed up half an hour ago. I had to tell him it was a false alarm. I snorted and turned back to fixing a few loose strands of my hair. Perfect, I said, with a note of deliberate satisfaction. Sophie sighed. I just don't get you, Hallie. This is your big day. There are going to be 500 people in that room with their eyes on you, and it's like you're set on making yourself as boring and stuffy as possible. Pretty much. She made an exasperated noise. Sophie is a graduate student, like I am. Like me, she is female and young, and reportedly attractive to those of a gynosexual bent. That is, however, where the similarities end. Where I am 182 centimeters tall, taller than many men, she's only about 165, just barely average. Where I am lean and fairly flat-chested, she is buxom and wide-hipped. I am dark... She has the pale skin and frizzy red hair of her Seth Morin ancestors, and where my beauty makes it difficult for me to be taken seriously in the hard sciences, hers is a great asset to her in her chosen field of sociology, specifically the science of attraction and sexual behavior. Apparently, a lot of people enjoy being studied by good-looking, energetic redheads who are also unabashed and enthusiastic participants in their own research. I know. I was just as astonished as I'm sure you are. You're insane, you know that, Sophie said, though without much rancor. If you had loosened up a little, you could have had every guy in the university eating out of your hand years ago. And some of the women, too. I believed her. Sophie would know, judging by some of her research subjects who came in for a nightcap and stayed for breakfast. I wouldn't say she was undiscriminating, but her tastes were diverse, to say the least. It had taken some effort on my part to persuade her that I wasn't on the menu. No time, I said, watching my own lips curl into a smirk as I hairsprayed another rebel strand into submission. I'll leave the socializing to you sociologists, thank you very much. 
Math and physics are infinitely more comprehensible than the average human. Sophie chuckled, coming up behind me and leaning down to check her own appearance in the mirror. She brushed a loose strand of hair out of her face and tucked it behind one ear. Maybe, she said, grinning impishly and lowering her mouth to my ear. Even with me sitting down, it didn't take much lowering. But they won't keep you warm at night, either. I met her gaze in the mirror and raised an eyebrow. If it becomes a problem, I'll buy a heating pad. Sophie clucked her tongue, gave me an expression that said, You're hopeless, and began helping me tame my hair into a position that nature had clearly never intended. I still think you should have worn a dress, or at least left her hair down. These curls would be gorgeous with just a little mousse and conditioner. You're missing the point, Sephi, I said, trying to be patient. I really did appreciate her help, and I'd need it if I was going to get to the lecture hall in time to go over my notes. This isn't Sathmore, and this isn't sociology. Hard science in Pyralis is an old boys' club inside an old boys' club. Any softness, any sex appeal at all, will be perceived as weak and unprofessional. She snorted at that. I'd like to see the guy who tries to tell you you're weak. I'd rather not provoke an incident in the first place, I said tiredly, particularly since some of these men could offer me jobs in the future. After a couple of minutes, she set down the hairspray and stepped back, nodding. I turned my head this way and that. That looks pretty good, I think. Thanks for the help. She patted my shoulder. No problem. Now let's move. I've already got your stuff out in the skimmer. Don't worry, I've mapped a route that's well clear of the funeral home, so there won't be any misunderstandings. I growled, swatting at her. But she ducked and ran off, giggling like a madwoman. Shaking my head, I stood, adjusted my suit jacket, and followed after her. If I hadn't known what was coming, the sight of the audience might have intimidated me. More than 500 people filled the largest auditorium at the College of Natural Sciences, an insanely large number for a student's defense, but word had leaked out about the topic of my study, and a great number of students and teachers from other departments were making an appearance for the talk. Reportedly, some of the philosophy and theology professors had made attendance mandatory for their students, and obviously the monology department was out in full force as well. Forewarned, however, is forearmed. I taught introductory sections of physics and calculus to classes this size, and I quickly adjusted to the thought of giving my talk to such a large crowd. Even the presence of reporters did little to disturb me. I knew my research backwards and forwards, and can easily counter any question their limited imaginations could devise. If anything, I hoped I would not have to embarrass them by exposing their naivete to such a broad audience. At the appointed time, my advisor, Dr. Pietro Galvani, came forward to introduce me. He was a short, pudgy little man, with the tanned skin, dark hair, thick beard, and aquiline nose typical of a native Pyralian. He was going bald on top, as his hair migrated to more southerly climes, such as his ears, nose, and back. His belly hung out over his belt buckle, and he walked with his feet turned out like a duck's. A comic impersonator could have been exceptionally cruel to him without even trying very hard. He was also the single most brilliant man I had ever met, an astonishingly good scientist and an incisive critical thinker. 
He had recognized the value of my research ideas when few others could even understand the math involved, much less the implications. His own magnificent career was the sole reason I had braved the patriarchal climate of Pyralis and chosen to come here, rather than some place like Metamore City, Elfquillen, or Marigund, where my gender would not be an immediate strike against me. Pietro did not share his countrymen's usual prejudices, and while our relationship had had its rocky periods, it was founded in mutual respect. The audience fell silent, and Pietro briefly outlined how I had become his student, and the ways in which I had distinguished myself during my five years under his tutelage. And now, he concluded, it is my great pleasure to introduce Halcyone Carmenos as she presents her dissertation, A Unified Model of the Space-Time Ether Matrix and Its Effects on Thaumatogenic Fields. Hallie? I took the microphone, and as I did so, the lights dimmed, and my presentation came to life on the projector behind me. Without hesitation, I slipped into the talk I'd rehearsed a half-dozen times in the last week, discussing material that after five years was so familiar to me that I could have related it in my sleep. This was the easy part. My manuscript had already been vetted and approved by the committee, and my knowledge of the field had been thoroughly tested in my written and oral examinations. This final talk was a mere formality, a way to share with the student body the fruits of my research. There was no challenge these people could put to me that I hadn't already overcome. For the sake of the audience, then, I kept things as simple as possible. The universe consists of the dimensions of physical space, both in the prima materia and in the outlying planes, time, which is shared by all spatial dimensions, and the pseudo-spatial dimensions of the ether. All substance within reality is composed of a combination of matter, energy, and mana, any of which can be interconverted with the others under the proper conditions. Mana passes back and forth between the physical planes and the ether, drawn by interactions of matter, energy, and the conscious manipulation of observers. Like leptons and quarks, thaumatons, the fundamental particles of mana, exist in different fundamental forms, called aspects, of which there are six. Their names, given in accordance with tradition, are earth, fire, air, water, life, and death. In raw mana, as in white light, all aspects are present in roughly equal proportions. Certain events on the physical planes, however, can cause thaumatons of one aspect to condense at a focal point. A forest fire, for instance, concentrates the aspects of fire and death, while reducing the affinity of that site for water and life. When conscious manipulation is applied to mana, it can be set into motion in a thaumatogenic field, producing what humans call magic, the manipulation of matter and energy, through the agency of a substance that is at once both and neither. All of this was simply a reiteration of Monology 101, of course. With this groundwork laid, I briefly described the history of investigation of the relationship between space-time and the ether, and the difficulties that had been faced in constructing a unified model of these two components of reality. The question of how mana moved into and out of the physical world, and why matter and energy could not penetrate the ether, was a problem that had vexed theoretical physicists for decades. This led directly into Pietro's work in the field, and thence into my own, which was to be the final, triumphant integration of past research into a unified, 
testable model of the space-time ether matrix. Now it was time for the mathematics, and I knew that I must be brief and direct. I put up the equations on the projected display, one at a time, describing in general terms the meaning and implications of each. Of the 500 people in the room, fewer than 10 could truly understand the math involved, so I left the equations floating in one corner of the display and moved on to the graphical diagrams of the model. Even if most of those present couldn't understand why the model worked, they could at least see what it looked like in action. I walked them through the tests I'd performed against data collected by past researchers and explained how the resulting meta-analysis showed that the model conformed well to those data. In a limited fashion, I had even been able to use the model to successfully predict the behavior of mana in a controlled experiment, which was a major coup. It's one thing to develop an observational model, and quite another to successfully test it under laboratory conditions. The applied physicists and monologists were showing a great deal more interest now, and I had to suppress a triumphant smile. Stay professional. Stay in control. Animated, but not manic. Confident, but not smug. Balance, balance, balance. I scanned over the crowd, or as much of them as I could see in the dim light. Good. No more than a tenth of them had nodded off or glazed over during the technical bits. With the model established and tested, I could now move on into the practical implications. If mana behaves this way... What constraints does this impose on the creation and behavior of magical fields? I set forth a few examples of its effects that were modest but interesting. Upper limits on the size of illusion fields, or the circumstances under which ritual sacrifice causes a net gain of mana, through concentrating the death aspect in greater quantities than the life aspect is lost. I shamelessly employed full-color images and video in these examples in order to capture the flagging interest of the students and laypeople in the crowd. Then, with everyone fully engaged, I dropped the bombshell. By far the most interesting implication of this model, however, I said, is its effect on divination magic. While divinatory fields can create a passage through the ether between two points in space-time, Equation 6 shows that information can only flow through this link from one point on the time axis to a point further forward along the time axis. Attempting to send information backward along the time axis results in a null value here in the denominator, which, as any algebra student can tell you, means that the equation is undefined. In other words, while it is possible to use divinatory fields to perceive the past through augury, or the present through scrying, they cannot be used to perceive the future. This means that what we call prophecy, the ability to relate events before they happen, is physically and magically impossible. I paused and let the implications sink in for a moment before going on. A quiet susurration flowed through the room as I saw dozens of heads turning to whisper to their neighbors. Most of the crowd probably didn't even hear my concluding summary. As I did, when I first saw the results, they were likely considering how much of mortal history had been shaped, even manipulated, through the words of seers and prophets. Kingdoms and empires had risen and fallen, innocents slaughtered and tyrants spared, entire lifetimes spent in pondering the meanings of cryptic riddles and poems. All of it for nothing. The future was a book we could not open. 
that no one ever had opened, not even the creatures that had once called themselves gods and still walked among us like giants, as if their insight gave them the right to rule over us. If the gods had ever seen anything, it was only the shadowy outcome of their own manipulations, like a chess master who plays against a novice and predicts the game ten moves ahead. His only power is that he is, at all times, in control of the game. The question-and-answer session ran twenty minutes over the allotted time, but I was more than happy to stay and answer the inquiries. Most of them I had been expecting in one form or another. People wanting explanations for how this or that prophecy or revelation had come true in the past. In most cases, the answer was easy. The prophecy in question had been given by a servant of one of the gods, and was not a true vision of the future, but simply a statement of what the gods intended to do. Now that the Pantheon had fallen to earth, mere shadows of their former glory, we could rest secure in the knowledge that mortals were free from this sort of manipulation. One history student brought up the prophecies of mad Felix of Lee, which I had also expected. Felix and his descendants, the Felicosh, had shaped much of the 7th and 8th centuries with their vague and rambling prognostications. I pointed out that the very fact that people had been aware of these prophecies and tried to make them come true invalidated them as impartial records of future events. And besides, the language of the prophecies was so ambiguous that any number of events could have been interpreted as fulfilling them. Even today, there were many aspects of Lee's prophecies that no historical event had fulfilled completely. So, drawled the reporter for the campus paper, are you saying that every supposed prophet in history has been a charlatan, a liar? Are they just making these things up as they go? Not at all, I said quickly. Many of them were certainly connected to something outside themselves. They may have seen events that had occurred in the distant past or in a far-off country. History does tend to repeat itself, after all, and a vague description of wars, alliances, and betrayals could easily be applied to many different times and circumstances. And of course, as I said before, some of them were receiving messages from the Pantheon themselves. There's no doubt that many of these people possessed genuine magic or psionic abilities. They simply weren't seeing what they thought they were seeing. After that, I fielded a few technical questions from the other scientists in the room until finally Pietro stood up and announced that we must clear the auditorium for the next class. People began filing out, and a few members of my dissertation committee came up to congratulate me. "'Extraordinary work, Hallie,' said Dr. Marielle Winters, a white-haired Sylvan woman from Metamore City whom I'd brought in as an outside expert on divination magic. She shook my hand firmly, her large black eyes sparkling." You'll make the cover of monology with this, mark my words. Thank you, I said, feeling genuinely honored. I couldn't have done it without you. She smirked. Nonsense. I was merely the technical support. You were the one with the vision. Though perhaps we should choose a different turn of phrase, she added, and we both laughed. I said goodbye to Dr. Winters and the rest of my committee, and began putting away my notes and equipment. As I was preparing to shut down the projector, I noticed a man standing at the front of the room, gazing up at the equations that were still floating in the upper left-hand corner. 
He was pale-skinned and about my height, with a neatly trimmed goatee and short, tousled hair that faded from a medium brown at the roots to blonde at the tips. I couldn't guess his age. He could have been anywhere between twenty-five and forty-five. He was dressed in a pale green business suit, which would have to be oppressively hot in the Pyralian summer heat, but it was as neat and crisp as if he had just taken it off the rack. A minor cleanliness enchantment, no doubt. He was perfectly still as he looked up at the equations, head cocked slightly to one side. Only his eyes roved back and forth, studying the display with intense interest. I stopped what I was doing and went over to him. I'm sorry, I said, but I'm afraid I have to turn this off now. The next class will be coming in any minute. He turned his head to look at me, a quick and almost bird-like gesture. Ah, yes, of course. My apologies, he said, smiling at me. His voice was bright and strong, like a stage performer or the lead tenor in an opera. He stuck out his hand and shook mine vigorously. Congratulations, it was a most entertaining presentation. I raised an eyebrow at his choice of words. Entertaining, eh? Should I assume, then, that I didn't put you to sleep during the technical parts? Oh, goodness, no. It was all very clever, very clever indeed. I applaud you. You're going to cause quite a stir in the field, make no mistake. He glanced up at the equations again, and his smile went crooked. He turned back and looked straight at me, and I saw that his eyes were the same color as his suit. They twinkled knowingly. Of course, you realize that the model is incomplete. What you've written here doesn't actually work. I felt my smile grow tight. It doesn't actually work. I'd been told the same thing many times over the years, and had never failed to prove myself. Oh? I asked, trying to be polite. And why is that? Just then, the doors at the back of the hall opened. A rush of students began pouring into the auditorium. The man in the green suit grinned and leaned forward conspiratorially to whisper in my ear. Because griffins can't fly upside down, he said. I pulled back and looked at him, dumbstruck. He winked, gave a small two-fingered salute with his right hand, then spun on his heel and left without another word. And that's the end of part one. Come back next week as Hallie tries to decipher the message of the stranger in the green suit. I'm a little short on time this week, folks, so you're going to have to come up with your own witty quotation about writing. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 7,264 words this week over the course of 10.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 676 words per hour. As of Saturday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 19 days without breaking my chain. I'm continuing to make rapid progress on The Lost and the Least. The pieces are all coming together now, as the story accelerates toward its conclusion. I'm now in Chapter 41, and the manuscript is over 135,000 words. Looking back at the month of November, I wrote a total of 21,617 words. That's well short of what I accomplished last year in November, but it's still my seventh highest monthly total to date, 
and the third highest total I've managed this year. I wrote on 24 days last month, averaging 901 words per day, and spent a total of 29.5 hours writing. Compared to October, I increased my word count by 334%, and my writing time by 247%. On the Patreon campaign, December pledges are currently in the process of being collected, so very soon I will know which of my patrons are eligible to receive signed copies of Divine Intervention. The books are on order from the printer, and I already have the shipping materials I need, so as soon as they arrive, I'll get them signed, addressed, and sent out. Next week I'll draw the winner of the Divine Intervention giveaway, so stay tuned to the fans of Metamore City Group and the Patreon page for the announcement. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing with this show, leave a review on iTunes. It really helps new listeners to find the show. Or make a monthly subscription to support the show at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2006 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit Creative Commons dot org.